Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favourite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Hear, Hear, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly dispatch from Brexit land, where, with less than a week to go before the deadline set by Donald Tusk, the European Council president, for Britain to come up with an acceptable offer on the financial settlement and a credible solution for the Irish border if it wants to move on to the second stage of Brexit talks, things are starting to get a little bit squeaky. Now, for reasons we've discussed before on this podcast, namely the EU27's need to circulate and agree the main conclusions of their forthcoming summit before it happens on December the 14th and 15th, the deadline that Tusk set Theresa May expires on December the 4th, which, handily, is when the Prime Minister is scheduled to be having dinner with the President of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker. So, if progress there is to be, that's when we might well expect to see it. Before then, though, a fair bit of movement is going to be needed. Now, there are strong, if unconfirmed, rumours that a letter setting out in broad terms what Britain might be prepared to pay by way of the so-called divorce bill is ready to be signed by the Prime Minister, and the general feeling seems to be that this is the lesser of the two problems. Although that may not prove true if, as is also rumoured, the government tries to make its offer conditional on getting a favourable trade deal at the end of the whole Brexit process. The question of the Irish border looks, on the other hand, to be the biggest single stumbling block, complicated by an unrelated scandal in the Irish government that seems actually, as we are recording this, to have been resolved, and the fact that without the backing of one of the parties with particularly strong views on this question, Theresa May's government is in very deep trouble. Now, the key problem here remains the fact that no one wants a hard border, but Britain's intention of leaving both the single market and the customs union makes some kind of policed frontier, either across the island of Ireland or effectively down the middle of the Irish Sea, basically inevitable. We should also have a quick look this week at the departure of two EU agencies from London, the saga of the government's 58 Brexit impact assessment reports and some typically intriguing comments on what he expects to emerge from the process by Sir Ivan Rogers. Remember him? He was the UK's former ambassador to the EU. So with me to look at all of this and give us the benefit of their combined and most expert knowledge are The Guardian's Brexit policy editor Dan Roberts and Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to both of you. Hello, good Thank to join you. Thank you for having us on. Pleasure. So let's begin with the money question, Dan. 
Is it your impression that the government has finally bitten the bullet on this? Are they prepared to stump up? How much are they prepared to stump up? And what will the Brexiters have to say about it? Sort of, I think. They have agreed enough probably to get them over that particular hurdle. I think it's worth bearing in mind that this is not a legal hurdle. These are not, we're not going to sign a treaty next Monday. We simply have to say the right words in the right order. And that's a pretty <laughs> low bar given all the other things that are going on. So I think it, 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 it is a hurdle we can probably clear. Whether it means that we have to go around again and do the same course in a year's time only with a higher bar and really meaningful legal text that has mm. to be agreed and some numbers, that's a whole other th- issue. And I think that you will hear lots of reports that that it's around 40 billion that we've agreed to and they they kind of want 60 billion but the truth is that neither side will really talk about numbers so mm. this is all about just making sure the mood method, music really, is or, right or, well that yeah, method or, or the calculation little, that will be used the, or the calculation is quite a scientific <laughs> what did they have a chance to say the other day economic term I, mean, oh, yes, yeah. I think we're talking a little we're talking politics here so we're okay. talking words and mood music and I think that the Brits have probably eaten enough humble pie to get them through it but let's not get too excited okay. 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 Now, Jennifer, the the EU talking still then about about the financial settlement. The the EU twenty seven and their negotiator Michel Barnier. I mean, they've been very insistent that there can be absolutely no link between the financial settlement, which they see as as very much being something to sort of settle past commitments, and the terms of the final trade deal, which is of course a a, a future thing. But it does sound pretty much as if Britain does view the divorce bill as at least some kind of down payment. Is that, do you think, going to prove a problem? My answer would be yes, but not straight away. So I think that people in Brussels and negotiators, people close to Barnier, are very well aware that any big payment uh, to the EU from London would be politically toxic. And they are actually quite willing to help the British government, if they can, to sell this to the public. So to sell it as the price mm. of a future deal. But on the other hand, Barnier has been clear all along that uh, that this is clearly about settling past accounts and not and not for the future. So we could find ourselves in a situation where in a few years' time, the UK is de- is debating with the EU how it can say have a join the EU research program, and it finds out that actually there's a price attached to that, or Erasmus, or anything else mm. that the UK might want to join. So I think this this could become a a huge political problem in the future, but possibly not uh, not immediately and not in in December. So, and is it your impression from the sort of the the, the music that you're you're hearing in Brussels that 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 Britain has kind of cleared the uh, cleared this initial hurdle? I don't think we can we can say that yet. I think people are still waiting to hear what Theresa May will actually propose. People are keeping their powder dry and, and don't want to to commit themselves. But it does seem that that really, as you, as you were mentioning in your introduction, now the the focus has shifted a bit to the to the issue of the Irish border. Right. Okay. Well, let's let us do that then as well. Um, You know, we've obviously discussed this quite a lot in previous episodes of Brexit Means, but it clearly is still a huge issue. And as we said, probably the the, the biggest one, biggest stumbling block on on the road to, to moving those talks on. Uh, from the Article 50 to divorce process to talking about a, a future trade deal. So uh, it may be worth reminding ourselves of just how intractable 
this problem really is. Dan, could I can I put you on the spot here and ask you to to outline in in kind of straightforward terms what the the basic problem is. I mean, Brexiters are going on 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 the media almost daily, gaily saying that whatever happens, it's it's basically Ireland's and the EU's problem and not the UK's. Is that right? Well, I think that this is um, a problem for both sides, but it's. Um one that which the British government is willing to take some pretty hard gambles with. The British government sees that Northern Ireland is a is a concern of the EU and is prepared to hold it to ransom. Uh, by, in my mind, and this is I'm not, certainly not the way the government would describe it, but in my mind, being extraordinarily woolly and vague with its promises about how it's going to avoid a hard border. Both sides agree they don't want one. The British response seems to be, well, why can't we just sort of have a customs union, sort of have a single market, where we agree to kind of turn a blind eye to things and have undefined, whizzy, electronic um, <laughs> new customs agreements that might not make it so relevant and um, might not lead to so many traffic jams. And and. Dublin is quite understandably saying, what? What what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, A border is a border. And if if it's one which there are big disparities over tariffs either side of it or customs duties either side of it, one which there's an economic incentive for people to try and skirt around the border. And therefore, you know, there is a legal obligation on both sides, particularly Dublin as the frontier Mm. of the European Union going forward to police that border. So it's one in which the British position of trying to have a cake and eat it is being called out. People are saying... Hang on a minute. What do you what do you actually mean by have your cake and eat it? And there there are very few ways around it. And the one that has really freaked out the DUP and 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 um, unionists generally is the the suggestion o- that on whom Theresa May obviously relies. Well, exactly. The whole government, the whole edifice is kind of perched mm. precariously on these ten votes, um, and they've been offered the very unpalatable choice of, well, why, instead of having a north-south border, why don't we have an east-west border? And why don't we have the customs union and the single market starting in the Irish Channel instead of along the, 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 the physical border, the land border? And uh, understandably, after having sort of fought themselves to a standstill over this very issue for the last few decades, the unionists are re- yes. reluctant to go there. Um, but I think that many Republicans would also feel very reluctant with the, with the alternative solution, which is putting up these huge barriers to the very thing that's created peace. So it, very, it is one of these things that's impossible to dodge. And dodge is exactly what the government has been trying to do on all manner of fronts for the last year. And this is the first one, the first time they are being held to account and asked to explain themselves. This really is Brexit hitting the brick wall of reality then. Absolutely. And there are many more to come, but this is the first. Jennifer, we seem to have dodged, or the EU seems to have dodged one potential problem with news just as we were about to start recording this, in fact, that the the Deputy Prime Minister in Ireland, who was at the centre of of an alleged corruption scandal that could have brought the government down, has resigned. So uh, the Irish Prime Minister does appear to be safe, which will be a relief, I imagine, in, in Brussels. They could have done, I'm sure, without a collapse of the Irish government and new elections. But to, to what extent are British attempts to sort of throw their weight around? I'm, I'm thinking here there was a, an editorial in The Sun a few days ago calling on Veradka, the Irish Prime Minister, shut his gob. I mean, that, that's presumably not playing very well in Brussels. No, although for some it shows the pressure that the British government is under and the difficulties they face. But I think we can see so far that the... The EU has been very united on the on the Ireland point, and and in fact very very prepared to to defer to Michel Barnier, who I think will really play a decisive role here, because it will be his report that determines 
whether the UK has met the sufficient progress benchmark on all these three areas, including Ireland. And we know that um, it's not going to come to the point where we get to the European summit this month and the Irish TSEC will, will throw down a veto that evening at the at the dinner table. It will be instead he, him and the Irish government feeding information, their view to Michel Barnier, who will then make his recommendation. So we'll see it sort of evolving in a less dramatic way. So Barnier will be playing a crucial role here. And what we have seen on the Irish issue is that um, member states have been ready to defer to Barnier. That he hasn't, he doesn't seem to me anyway to have faced the same sort of pressure maybe on the on the money issue where you saw France, Germany, and the other big mm. budget payers saying, "No, we're, this isn't good enough. We want to see more detail from the British on their offer." I think on the Irish issue, the Commission have been really in in the a lot well really on the lead on this, but also taking a lot of getting a lot of input from the Irish government as well as to the the pitfalls of this this really um, dangerous situation. I think because nobody wants to be seen to be uh, destroying the peace process so mm. everyone's treading extremely carefully. Yeah, so what, I mean, what is the way out then? I mean, Dan, you, you've said in the past that essentially you agree with at least the sort of the parting premise of, of the British government, which is that clearly this question can't be resolved without reference to the future trade deal. But the EU seem absolutely adamant and Britain did sign up to this sequencing the process, the order in which these talks have to be carried out. What, what is the way forward now? Well, I, I think it does have to be one for the phase two talks, really. Uh, and although everybody did sign up to this being a test for sufficient progress, if you remember at the very first meeting when that timetable was set out, the Irish question was put punted into a side committee. It was it was a working group was going to examine Ireland rather than um, the uh, the money and the, mm. the citizens' rights, which were actually drawing up legal, you know, treaties mm. or, the, or the drafts of treaties. And I think that the only way through this for the time being is, um, again, some, some woolly words. I, I hate to sound like this is all just degenerated into sort of mood music, but I feel it has. And I, I think that at this stage, um, just as with the money, what Theresa May will be required to do is put a little bit more flesh on the bone about how she intends to avoid the hard border. But the real nub of it will have to wait until we get to the trade talks, the customs talks, because it, that is the only solution that makes sense. Uh, short of the Brits turning around and saying, OK, fair, no, no, we'll stay in the customs union, we'll stay in the single market. And that just politically is not is not, not going to fly. Happen. It's not going to happen. Jennifer, would they accept that kind of, you know, a, a sort of a written in blood promise from London? And, and what would it have to contain, do you think? Well, that is a really good question because we've never had a very clear definition of, as to what sufficient progress means on any of these issues, and uh, including Ireland. But I would just mention on the on how the the Irish issue has been handled in the negotiations. I wouldn't say it's been shunted into a side group because it was it was um, an issue that was taken charge of by the the two deputy negotiators by Sabine Vaughan for the EU, Ollie Robbins on the UK side. So I think it's been given a very high priority, but I think it, the fact that it has been treated in a different way, that it hasn't been a sort of straightforward negotiating issue, just shows how sensitive it is for both sides. And I think all along there has been this idea that we would have some kind of woolly words, if, as Dan would have it, some mm. rather vague political declaration. But increasingly the signs we're getting from the Irish government is that that isn't good enough and they think it's not enough to, for the UK government to say we don't want a hard border. They would like some some tangible guarantee of what that means and how you will guarantee that. And that's really now where we're getting to the crux of this this argument. And there is huge uncertainty in Brussels about what it's going to mean for 
for whether the UK can move on beyond phase one or not in December. And it's, it's a genuinely open question, I think. My worry with that, though, is what, is de- what it degenerates into is a blame game, that what, that what you have both sides saying, well, obviously, we don't want a hard border. And then you, say, then you have both sides saying, but it's the other people that made us do it. And the Brits will say, well, it's the EU with their intransigence over not being able to think creatively about new forms of customs arrangements. And the, the, the EU will make the reverse argument. And, that, and, and I fear that we're in a sort of slightly kind of uncreative process of blame shifting. Um, and that this might be the, the, the beginnings of that. And it could go on for months. Yes, I think it could easily um, degenerate into that, and you you see with accusations flying around on on both sides. So it's it's really not uh, not obvious how this will be solved in the next few weeks or even a week because of uh, the deadline is on Monday. Well, exactly. We have we have essentially yeah felt four or five days now. Yeah. Um, well, well, I mean, yeah, all clearly still to play for there. Um, I just want to touch briefly on a couple of other things that have happened over the over uh, over the past fortnight. Dan, firstly, um, the, these impact assessment reports. Now, this is something that again that is actually going on as we're as we're recording uh, in in Parliament in Westminster. But but several months ago, the Brexit Secretary David Davis said, um, and rather rashly, it now transpires uh, on the BBC that his Dex EU department was preparing analyses in excruciating detail, his words, of the impact that Brexit would have on 58 sectors of the UK economy. Now, he's been rowing back on that statement basically pretty much ever since. Um, And right now, as I said, there's an unholy row going on in Parliament about it because MPs made a formal demand and voted um, that they wanted to see these reports. Um, The government has finally handed something over, but it's not at all what Parliament was expecting. Dan, what's, what's happening here and how important could it be in the process? Well, I think it's quite a significant short-term political row. My personal feeling, and this is a non-consensus view, so I will, because <laughs> okay. b- b- I think the consensus is this is a big deal. Um, my personal feeling is I think there's a bit of a cock-up. I think it's a cock-up partly because the government, as you said, overstated the extent to which it made these preparations, ma- made these reports, mm. and, and, and that, that's embarrassing because it makes it look like government was making things up as it went along, which it has been. <laughs> um, and then I think there is the question of how much have they been watered down um, for public consumption? Um, the truth is we don't yet know. They only went to the committee this morning. The committee is clearly alarmed that they may have been. I have spoken to people who have read them, um, or at least the majority of them, and insist they they are not really that watered down, that actually we will be pleasantly surprised when we see them at how meaty they are. So... Um, whether that particular source has proved to be right and whether there has been some interference along the way by David Davis, I don't know. And I, I, I hesitate um, to to um, guess on that. But I, I would say that the government um, is very bad at keeping secrets. And if it really ha- was in possession of um, things that said dynamite, that it was yeah. all going to go to hell in a handcart mm. and it rewrote them and said, it's all going to be fine, I think that would come out. And mm. I think that they would be reluctant to be quite as crude as that. So okay. I think the jury is still out on whether there is really a cover-up. Possibly up a sideshow. OK, um, Jennifer, um, back to you. We, we learned last week that the the European Banking Authority will be moving to Paris after Brexit and the European Medicines Agency to Amsterdam. Uh, Obviously, for many people, this was a first real sort of tangible sign of Brexit, 1,200 highly qualified jobs leaving London. Um, But it was also a reminder that on March the 29th, 2019, banking regulation
Education and Medicines Authorization on the continent will now continue almost exactly as before, whereas in Britain, nobody really knows. Now, is there a feeling in Europe that Britain may have underestimated the sheer weight of the sort of regulatory machinery that is going to have to be replaced and and put in place after after Brexit? Yes, I think that sort of writ large is the, the feeling is that that Britain has um, underestimated the whole challenge of Brexit full stop. But this is especially true when it comes to regulation. If you look at um, EU agencies, there are more than 40. They carry out very highly technical Mm. um, regulations when it comes to environment, food safety, energy, finance, and so on. And all of these all of these bodies, to some extent, will have to be replicated at, at UK level. And that just seems like an enormous task. Uh, especially when there's there are so many other things to do in terms of building up new a new trade relationship with the EU and and the rest of the world as well. It really is something that's going to to um, uh, to block up the machinery of, of Whitehall. You can imagine for a, a decade to come. And I think Michel Barnier also sort of alluded to this as well when he he gave a speech recently on the day of the agency's decision. In fact, and he said that um, that he had the impression that. British policymakers had underestimated the fact that these agencies were going to to leave the UK and also that the Brexit vote means that the UK will have to come up with its own agencies and uh, administrative regulation. And he said freedom implies responsibility. So I think there was a clear message there that um, the UK has really uh, underestimated mm. this challenge. And, and a reminder from him, Brexit means Brexit. Yeah, Dan, I mean, has Britain underestimated it? Has any preparation been, been done, for example, about um, you know what, 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 what the country will do when it comes to medicines authorisation, for example, after 2019? No, and that's because <laughs> it's completely in, unthinkable as far as much of British business is concerned. The thing, if you talk to drug makers or um, aerospace companies or any of these big complex um, highly productive mm. flagships of British industry actually all of the, I mean if you if, if basically if you look at the the bits of the the economy that have been doing best over the last 20 or 30 years they're the they're ones, the ones that, that are going to be most affected they're the ones that yeah. rely most on international cooperation because they're very globally facing and they're often in sort of high tech industries that require very complex regulation and they are utterly aghast at the idea that they um, will have to um, not only give up control over uh, their ability to influence how these regulations mm. are set um, but may end up having to have meet a whole new set of t- um, standards just because they're outside the mainstream. They're mm. outside the, the, the European and the US, which is the other big standard setter. So it is inconceivable for big pharma or aerospace to not have a voice at the table when it comes to regulation. And because of that, the government hasn't really done any thinking, as far as I can tell, about what might replace them. It has relied on the assumption as it has elsewhere that ultimately it's in Europe's self-interest too to keep us inside the tent and that eventually we'll have a, an answer. I, I think in the medium term that could prove very, very costly and could prove a disaster. Yeah. In the long run, is it beyond the wit of man to, to reinvent 
a drugs agency or an aerospace safety agency? Of course not. Many of the people who work there at the moment are British. Many of them won't go when these things relocate uh, in the case of drugs and, mm. and finance. Um, and of course, we can recreate them in the long run. But my God, could it be painful? It's going to be time consuming yeah. and expensive. And yeah, and yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Um, finally, I just wanted to touch on a, a really fascinating speech, actually, that was given at an Oxford college last week by Sir Ivan Rogers, Britain's former ambassador to the EU. Uh, it was on the whole backstory of Brexit and on the part played by David Cameron and the development of Euroscepticism. Really a fascinating read. But the point I wanted to touch, touch on was that answering questions afterwards, he made a couple of very interesting remarks. He said, firstly, that he could guarantee that the whole Brexit process, including the final trade deal, was going to take at least a decade. He said, too, that Britain's insistence on wanting a bespoke trade deal was basically unrealistic and that that was increasing the chances of a car crash over the next few months. And finally, he said this. The internal market is an extraordinarily complex international law construct that simply does not work in a way that permits the type of options that the current British government is pushing for. Now, I just very briefly interested in your reaction to that, Dan. Does this basically mean that all Britain can hope for is a Canada-type basic off-the-shelf free trade deal? Well, let me come to that in a second. The first thing I would just react to is say there's nothing more delicious than being proved right. And in the case of Ivan Rogers' case, <laughs> nothing more delicious than being proved right having been sacked for saying it yes. in the first place. So the listeners who may remember this but should be reminded if not, he said all these things to the government no. a year ago. Absolutely. They got rid of him because they didn't like it. They didn't want to hear it. And lo and behold, many of the things he said have come to pass. And he's saying them again, but with a big smirk on his face, which <laughs> may annoy a lot of people, but I think he deserves it. Secondly, to the, to the question of what we can actually get out of a trade deal, I think it is really useful to look at these um, different country models and it is increasingly a choice between a Canada type option where we have very little um, harmonisation particularly on services but we have a lot of sovereignty and the Norway type option where we have a lot of um, integration but we make big sacrifices on sovereignty so Ivan's point is the one that he's made all along and it can't be said enough that you cannot have your cake and eat it. These are two sides of the same coin. And they are not just politically two sides of the same coin. They're legally two sides. They they, 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 they legally interface so that mm. if you have less sovereignty, you have more integration and vice versa. And so we do... It's not just a question of having to say, do we want to be Norway or Canada? It's, it's about framing it as a, as, as a sort of uh, as a continuum and working out that if we have more of something, we have less of something else, rather than just blithely saying we want everything because that's just not the way the world is. Yeah, and it's certainly not the way the EU is. Jennifer, um, final quick word, a, a bespoke deal always a non-starter? Well, I, I can only second what, what Dan said, that this is exactly what Ivan Rogers was telling the government a year ago, and that's because he was hearing it from other EU 27 mm. diplomats, and that's still the message that they are giving today, that they don't see uh, a sort of super... Uh, variation on a, on a trade deal. They see something very similar to a Canada deal and um, uh, with some with some supplementary deals as well on, on uh, foreign policy, on security. But when it comes to the economic relationship, there is a choice to be made and it's a choice between the, the Norway or the Canada model. And that's, um, that's all that is on offer. 
Right. Yep. So, so much for deep and special then. Um, well, that's... Well, Norway, well, just, let's just hang on a second here, because I think that's the other thing. I know you were just looking for a way out, John, but <laughs> we should remind the listeners that <laughs> Norway is a deep and special relationship, but it's one in which Norway acknowledges that it to be part Absolutely. of the single market, it has to play by certain we, we, rules. We, 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 that's pretty deep and special in my it's view. Absolutely. It's just, it's, it's just, it will be dismissed yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe as, they, a, as a second class option. You're absolutely right. Maybe we should say, uh, maybe we should say special. Uh, so much for special, but it's deep. Certainly, Norway certainly deep, but it, but it, but it doesn't it, get it any busts favors, straight yeah. through. Um, you know, most of the government's Brexit red lines. So yes, let's let's reformulate that. So much for a special relationship. Um, well, that is it for this week. Thanks to Dan and Jennifer for joining us. Next week we'll be discussing tech and Brexit. So if you have any questions about that, email us at Brexit Means. That's all one word, Brexit Means at theguardian.com. Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, join the discussion on Twitter, just search for Guardian Podcasts. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.